Hey, welcome back. Uh, we're continuing on a journey through Jonathan Sachs' book, Morality, and we are up to chapter six, entitled Marcus Without Morals. This is the second chapter for part two uh, of the book, entitled Consequences, the Market and the State. And today we're going to um, talk about the market economy. And then as we normally do, we'll finish up with some thoughts on this week's Parsha, Parsha Bashala, from Rabbi Sachs' book called Judaism's Life-Changing Ideas, and the title of this chapter is called The Longer, Shorter Road. So let's first go on with our discussion about morality. So uh, we start off, for those of us who could remember it, back in uh, the early 2000 timeframe, Enron was a pretty well-known company. It had been named by Fortune Magazine as the most innovative company for six years in a row. Each year, its profits were increasing and its stock prices rose. And then the end of 2001, its accounting firm, Arthur Anderson, uh, uh, was essentially uh, discovered to be engaged in prolonged systematic fraud insider trading. And Enron ultimately filed for bankruptcy. And this led uh, really to a, a real culture of corporate governance, which had come under a shadow, which really it hasn't emerged from over the last 20 years. 50 years ago, the, the perspective was corporations were established with clear public purposes, and it wasn't just confined to a profit. This, the role that they had included uh, the impact business would have on the environment, inequality, and social cohesion. And really now, uh, the perspective of an unbridled capitalism where the focus of each corporation was to maximize profit that's um, been a, a transition that we've seen over the last 50 years in, in, in corporate America. Uh, business cannot be just about short-term profit, but ha- also has to include long-term benefit for multiple stakeholders, the public, shareholders, employees. And how did we go from this multifaceted approach to a um, an overemphasis on corporate greed and, and, and a less concern for the larger, larger role in society. And we can look at the financial deregulation that happened in the 1980s, which did lead to a, a boom with sustained economic growth, but it wasn't an equal boom. Uh, if you look at the pre-tax income for the top 10% of Americans, they doubled. And the top 1%, it tripled. And the top 0.001% rose more than seven times. Now, during that same period, the bottom 60% of American workers had static income in, in real terms. So while a lot of uh, success occurred as, uh, as uh, financial systems became deregulated, uh, the, the benefits of that were not equally distributed in society. During the 2008 crash, the stock market fell 30%, yet top executive salaries rose 10%. And the, the relative egalitarian era of the 1950s after the Great Depression and Second World War II, as we just discussed, really led to a highly unequal one now. And this is not an accident in the mind of Rabbi Sachs. It's taking place during a period when the age of we is mutating into the age of me. Now, in in the most recent uh, economic crisis we had in the late uh, 2009 timeframe, banks were able to leverage their capital to a degree unheard of before. Um, as Warren Buffett would say, you know, if it looks too good to be true, it probably is. And he defined 
derivatives as financial weapons of mass destruction. And boom, particularly real estate boom, and the overall corporate boom turned into a bust and profit turned into losses and people were suffering. Governments had to step in and bail out the banks at a massive cost. And it was the more responsibility of the populations to rescue the economy from collapse. And in the end, the market needed to be saved by something that was not the market and did not work by the market's principle of self-interest. So Joseph Stalin once said that the death of one man is a tragedy, the death of millions is a statistic. And the crash of 2007, 2008 showed us that something similar is true in the world of finance. In 1965, the ratio of chief executive to worker pay in the United States was 20 to 1, and now it's over 300 to 1. And this has led to a massive fall in young people's trust in large corporations to do the right thing. Two two generations ago, 60% of people trusted them to do so. Today, the figure is 6%. And collectively, it shows a profound loss of trust in business and the capacity of the market to regulate itself in the interests of the common good is, is in question. So the real issue is market, the markets are great at creating wealth, but they're not particularly effective at distributing it. And equitable distribution requires something other than self-interest. It needs a sense of the common good, of the we, not just the I. Markets need morals. And even in the at the top of the crisis with the large banks in America, people were outraged because as the bankers were getting public funds to bail them out, a lot of executives were still getting golden parachutes so that even if they failed, they were still able to get bonuses and pensions um, regardless of the performance of the overall company. And this is a classic case of moral hazard. Moral hazard occurs when one party is involved in risk-taking but knows that should the decision turn out to be a bad one, someone else is going to pay the price. And when this happens, there's there's a distortion in decision-making because the potential gain's high, but the potential loss, the cost of that will be borne by others. So you have an incentive to take high-risk decisions that would not otherwise be justified. So that doesn't seem very fair. And a basic sense of justice as fairness is deeply embedded in human instinct you see it in young children, and even goes beyond humans. Uh, there's lots of primate studies that look at how animals respond, and animals will respond very harshly when they see uh, that they're being treated differently. So there's something in our in our DNA uh, that uh, we we have a real moral affront to to inequality and not being treated fairly. And moral hazard offers the upside of risk with no downside, and that offends our sense of justice as fairness. Self-rewarding behavior of bankers in our time shown the market at its amoral worst. Now, Rabbi Sachs doesn't criticize, while he is providing a critique of unbridled capitalism, capitalism in itself is not something he questions. Uh, it, it, it's been the best antidote we know of for general poverty, It produces massive incentives for creativity and it's liberated people through free markets that Marxism never could. If you go to the Enlightenment thinkers such as Adam Smith, David Hume, and Montesquieu, they saw that 
economic development was a powerful solution to one of humanity's greatest traditional weaknesses, which was violence. When two nations meet, they can do one of two things. They can wage war or they can trade. If they wage war, they're both likely to lose in the long term. If they trade, both will likely gain. And that's the logic behind the establishment of trade unions such as the European Union. Now, Adam Smith, who you know, he's considered the father of capitalism, his most famous line was, quote, It is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interest. Now, Smith did for economics what Hobbes, which we talked about previously, had done for politics. He showed that self-interest led logically to a creation of a system of commercial contracts. Adam Smith wrote another book, Besides the Wealth of Nations, and this one was called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And here's what he said there. Quote, How selfish soever man may be supposed, there are evidently some principles in his nature which interest him in the fortune of others and render their happiness necessary to him, though he derives nothing from it except the pleasure of seeing it. Unquote. So Adam Smith took for granted that to be human is to have a moral sense. And he, he looked at capitalism as inherently requiring a moral framework for it to be successful. Now, David Hume warned against the perils of consumerism. Quote, acquiring goods and possessions for ourselves and our nearest friends is insatiable, perpetual, universal, and directly destructive to society. Unquote. So there's a risk of tension between self-interest and the common good. And the question is, how do we balance the considerations between selfishness on the one hand and fairness on the other? There's also another issue, which is the natural temptation to be a free rider, to benefit from public goods without contributing your share, to care for the I, not the we. And that's very powerful. So you have to create disincentives to overcome that tendency for people. If you look at uh, the behavior of the banks, their behavior is really a logical consequence of the individualism that's been our substitute for morality since the 60s, where the I takes the precedence over the we. You can't expect rejection of traditional morality in every sphere of life and for it not to involve the marketplace as well. If you remember the 1980s classic Wall Street, Michael Douglas says, quote, greed is for lack of a better word is good. Greed captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. It marks the upward surge of mankind. In a world where the market's rule and its operation is driven by greed, people come to believe that their worth is measured by what you earn or can afford and not by the qualities of your character, such as honesty, integrity, and service. And this extends to politics, which ceases being about vision or aspiration or the common good and instead becomes transactional, another kind of consumer product. And politics becomes a business like no other. So we're seeing, you know, the, the first the thing first these trades feed the market and they naturally go into politics. Now, without morals, markets cannot function. If you look at the whole underpinnings of of markets, they're based on trust. The word credit comes from the Latin cred, the same root we see in credo, meaning I believe. Confidence, the presence or lack of which shapes markets, comes from the Latin root fidus, meaning to have faith in someone or something. When there's a breakdown of trust, which is required for any sort of banking relationship, there's serious risk for the market to function effectively. You rely on people to be honest lenders, to fill out a credit application honestly, 
to give their word, to pay back what they owe. If trust falls apart, you can't have trade. Now, the market economy has generated more real wealth, eliminated more poverty, and liberated more creativity than any economic system. The fault's not with the market, but the idea that the market alone is all we need. Markets aren't going to guarantee equity, responsibility, or integrity. They can maximize short-term gain, but at the cost of long-term sustainability. And they can't be relied on to distribute rewards fairly. They can't guarantee honesty. And when they are confronted with flagrant self-interest, they combine the maximum of temptation with the maximum of opportunity. So markets need morals, and morals are not made by markets. Morals are made by schools, the media, custom, tradition, religious leaders, moral role models, and the influence of people. And when religion loses its voice and the media worships success, people lose all sense of honor and shame, and no regulation is going to save us. People will always be able to outwit the regulators. So in closing, markets were made to serve us. We were not made to serve markets, and they need ethics. They do not survive by markets' forces alone. They depend on respect for the people affected by decisions. You lose that, and we lose not just money and jobs, but something more significant. Freedom, trust, and decency. The things that have value, but not a price. So with that, let's move on to some a brief conversation about this week's Parsha, Bashala. And this is a chapter, again, it's entitled The Longer, Shorter Road which uh, brings to mind, we'll hear later, one of my favorite passages that I've read to date in the Talmud. So uh, Rabbi Sachs here first quotes um, so, uh, Timothy Ferris from his book, Tribe of Mentors, and a poem, and I'm going to summarize the poem, but it, it's, it's called An Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. So I'm going to summarize, I'm not taking it by quote, but chapter one, I walk down the street, there's a deep hole in the sidewalk, I fall in, I'm helpless, it's not my fault. Chapter two, I walk down the same street, there's a deep hole, I pretend not to see it, I fall in again, but it's still not my fault. Chapter three, I walk down the street, there's a deep hole, I see it, I still fall in, it's habit, but I realize it's my fault. Chapter four, I walk down the same street, there's a deep hole, I walk around it. Chapter five, I walk down another street. And this is probably how life is like for many of us. We set off very confident about where we're going, only to find that life is really that simple. As John Lennon said in Beautiful Boy, life is what happens when we are making other plans. We fall in the holes, we make mistakes, we make them again. Eventually, we avoid them. So let's see how this connects to the Parsha. So if you can remember where we're at, we're at the point now where Pharaoh lets the Hebrews leave Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 13, verse 17 and 18, God did not lead them by way of the land of Philistines, although that was nearby. For God said, lest the people change their mind when they encounter a war and return to Egypt. So God brought the people by a roundabout way of the desert to the Red Sea. So it's it's actually confusing a little bit about what the text is saying. God didn't want the people immediately to face battle with the the, the, the armies of Canaan as, a, as newly liberated slaves. They weren't psychologically prepared for war. There's also actually a historical fact, which is that there were Egyptian forts all along the sea route to Canaan. So they would have come up against that even before reaching the land. 
So there's three facts we need to reckon with here. What's Number one, the Torah itself says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He, he sent Pharaoh to send chariots out to chase the Israelites. And what do the Israelites cry out? Were there not enough graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out here to die in the desert? It would have been better for us to be slaves in Egypt than die in the desert. So why is God causing Pharaoh to pursue the Israelites if he doesn't want them to think about going back? All right, so we, that, that's number one. Number two is the people actually did face war long before they came anywhere near the land of Canaan. Uh, right after they crossed the Red Sea, they were attacked by the Amalekites. So they actually faced war anyway. And then the third issue is the roundabout route which God sent them on didn't prevent them from wanting to go back. Um, if you remember when the, when the spies report back and are, the people are terrified by their account of the strength of a native population in Canaan, and they say, quote, this is in Numbers 14, verse 4, let us appoint a new leader and return to Egypt. So it seems here that the circuitous route by which God led the Israelites was not to prevent their wanting to return, but actually it was for a different reason. It was to prevent them from being able to return. And once they're in the middle of the desert far away, they had no choice. They had to move forward. They couldn't go back even when they wanted to go back. And this is something that Jews have faced from the dawn of our history. We've been forced to learn that lasting achievement takes time and you can never get there by the shortest road. Now, Malcolm Gladwell wrote, wrote a book, um, I think it was called Outliers, where he talked about how experts require 10,000 hours of practice throughout, you could put this regardless of specialty, for them to become experts. So any kind of get-rich-quick scheme or rapid diet effort, it's going, the results are going to fade away. There's not going to be any long-term success. When you try to take a shortcut, you find yourself like the poet we talked about in Tim Ferriss's book to open up this chapter, you find yourself falling into a hole. So let's go to my favorite, one of my favorite stories from the Talmud. And this is from Tractate Erevin. And it's the story of Rabbi Yehoshua ben Hanania. He asked a young man sitting at a crossroad, which is the way to the town? The young man pointed to one of the paths and said, this way is short but long, and the other way is long but short. So Yoshua ben Hanyanya set out on the first path. He quickly arrived at the town, but found the way blocked by gardens and orchards. He then returned to the young man and said, didn't you tell me that this path was short? The young man said, I did, but I also warned you that it was long. So the lesson is better to take the long road that eventually gets you to your destination than the short one that doesn't, even though it looks as if it does. So in a world filled with get rich quick and fad diets, the life-changing idea symbolized by the route God led the Israelites on when they left Egypt is that there are no fast tracks. The long way is short, the short way is long. Better by far to know at the outset that the road is long, the work is hard, and there'll be setbacks and false turnings. You'll need grit, resilience, stamina, and persistence. In place of a pillar of cloud leading the way, like the Israelites had in the desert, you'll need the advice of mentors and encouragement of friends. But the journey's exhilarating, there's no other way. The harder it gets, the stronger you become. So 
the life-changing idea from this week's Parsha, there are no fast tracks. Lasting achievement takes time. You can never get there by the shortest road. The harder it gets, the stronger you become. You know, and I'll just end with my own thoughts that Hashem, God took the Jews out of Egypt, but it took the 40 years to get the Egypt out of the Jews, right? So we see with a lot of people who want instant success in life that deferred gratification is often a ticket to long-term happiness. You got to put in the hard work and you'll be rewarded, but it's going to take time. So with that, I want to wish everyone a great week and look forward to talking to you next week. Take care.